Hello there. Welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series called Tamar and Other Disposable People. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend checking that one out first because it lays some important groundwork for today's episode you might find helpful. And for those of you who were able to catch part one, let's have a quick recap to jog the old memory. In part one, we read through the story of Tamar and saw how the life of a childless widow was imposed upon her by Judah, the patriarch, the person who had the power to do so. But that wasn't the end of Tamar's story. Through a creative act of resistance, Tamar courageously pursues the restoration of her dignity, her sense of belongingness in the community, and her access to the necessary means of survival. Then, we questioned the idea that the mystery of unemployment can simply be traced to the mystery of nature. And finally, we looked at unemployment in an uncommon way. We raised the idea that the reality of unemployment could be seen as a way of socially controlling the masses of no-wage, low-wage, and middle-wage communities, even those who think of themselves as middle-class. So, all of this has been part of our longer conversation on the differentials of power that exists at our workplaces and the businesses we purchase our needs and wants from, between employers and employees, between the directors of capitalist enterprises and their workers. And to wrap this all up, in this episode of Faith and Capital, we've got three things on the old agenda. First, we're going to reflect on a particular way one might interpret the god of Tamar. Then, I want to talk about a new group of people who are legally rendered disposable here in the U.S. But I also want to suggest that their disposability is intertwined with the well-being of people who are not grouped up with them. And last but not least, I want to lay out a few different ways one could think theologically about all this disposability stuff. Alright, so the God of Tamar, a new disposable group, and theological implications. Let's go. Why do you think people thousands of years ago thought the story of Tamar was worth telling? Perhaps one reason we could imagine people tell stories like that of Tamar is because they see themselves in the stories they tell. Remember in episode 3 how I mentioned the telling of Tamar's disposability interrupts Joseph's continually being thrown away? Well, what if part of what made these stories so meaningful to the ancient Hebrew orators and audiences was this theme of disposability? When we look at how the stories of Tamar and Joseph are interwoven together, I don't think it's that far-fetched to assume that the communities from which these narratives initially emerged saw themselves as people who, like Tamar, had been disposed of, and believed the god of Tamar was the god of disposable people. Seen in this lens, this god of the disposable people seems to take sides. And not just any side, but the side of persons and communities who are discarded and rendered invisible by people who are systemically enabled to do so. This God is at work among the unwanted and the untouchables. 
the childless widows who are seen as burdens to society. And the work of this God is the pursuit of justice, justice that, when seen through the life of Tamar, restores dignity, personhood, and belongingness to the discarded, justice that protects and defends by any means necessary people's access to the means of survival and human flourishing. All this to say that I think the story of Tamar has the potential to guide us toward a way of being in the world, right? A, a kind of faith that seeks the well-being and restoration of those who are rendered disposable, as opposed to a faith that normalizes, passively tolerates, or even outright defends systems that discard of human beings. Of course, God does murder two likely teenage boys in the story, just as the God of the disempowered workers in the story of the Exodus commits genocide. We could also point out that, at the end of the day, Judah remains in power over Tamar. Their relationship remains patriarchal and oppressive. Yet, instead of trying to explain away these unliberative aspects of our stories and these violent and destructive images of God, I think they can serve as helpful reminders that no matter what story we tell, no matter how liberative or loving our theology may sound to us, our finite stories, our human narration of our experiences of the divine, are always partial, particular, limited, and incomplete. In fact, as history seems to suggest, when we absolutize or universalize our particular human stories and experiences, yes, even our theology, they all too easily can become rationales for the alienation and violent destruction of others, most often while we're completely unaware of it. It's something for us to consider, even if we do choose to proclaim that the God of Jesus is the restorative God of disposable people. But now, I want to turn to the present moment. What if there are parallels between our story society, which allows for Tamar's suffering, exclusion, and desperateness in our own society? Let's recall that in part one, we raised the possibility that the unique unemployment of a portion of the population that exists in every free market capitalist society is structurally created to disempower working, low-wage communities who are then used to disempower middle-wage communities. You, the worker, want more of your working hours to go to your paycheck and less of your working hours to go to making profits for your employer. You need higher wages to pay for your kid's education, to pay off that school debt, those medical bills, the ever-looming mortgage. Well, I, the employer, need and want my profits, so I'll just find someone who will work for those wages. Heck, I bet I can find someone who would work more for less. Employees, it seems, are always replaceable. But people, of course, can't risk losing their jobs, and so they're stuck under the mercy of the board of directors who exclusively hold the decision-making power concerning the production and distribution of profits. With this view of unemployment in mind, I want to spend a little bit of time 
talking about a particular group of people right here in the old U.S. of A. who are legally denied employment, housing, food, health care, education, and just to top it all off, the right to politically represent themselves, the right to vote. That's right. Employers are, by law, allowed to deny this group of people the right to sell their labor for wages, the wages used to purchase the necessities of life. Landlords can legally say, no, we don't want you living here. This group is denied access to government aid and what used to be called uh, food stamps, aid that individuals and their families need when they're out of work and are food insecure. Private insurance companies can say, nope, we don't want to cover you. If people in this group want to pursue a new life or any kind of dream that requires higher education, they won't be getting any scholarship. And if they want to have a voice in the politics of society that directly affects their lives, well, they can't have that either. This group of people, for all intents and purposes, are rendered disposable, thrown away to live desperate, vulnerable lives. But what I want to suggest is that their disposability, their exclusion and severe suffering, is tied up with the disempowerment and struggle of middle-wage communities, workers, and families. And we're going to refer to this growing group of people as formerly incarcerated persons. Now, if that sounds absurd to you, that people from families who have two cars, live in the suburbs, spend $7 on specialized lattes, and might even be pursuing a master's degree, could have real common interests with people who have been incarcerated, just hang on with me. Because as absurd as that might sound, I think it's a potentially dangerous truth that the few most powerful people in the U.S. would not want the rest of us to believe. In the 1970s, lots of significant events and shifts were underway in the U.S. White communities all across the U.S. were mobilizing in reaction against the federal enforcement of civil rights acts that sought to establish new rights for people racialized as non-white. Women, as well as gender and sexual nonconformists, too, were winning rights they and their ancestors had never known before, and were soon confronted with resistance from those who longed to maintain the heteronormativity and patriarchy of the society they were raised in. For various reasons we'll discuss at some point, huge waves of women and immigrants were flooding the labor market simultaneously while the factories of old were moving shop for cheaper labor, primarily found in other countries, leaving entire communities without employment overnight. Many U.S. Americans were also beginning to question why we were halfway around the world in Vietnam in the first place, and for numerous reasons were growing in their concern with the consequences of war. To top it all off, Capitalism itself in the U.S. would see a major transition from the reigning macroeconomic theory of Keynesianism toward the re-emergence of neoclassical microeconomics, two very distinct theories of capitalism. But 
While all these cultural, political, and economic transitions were taking place, the decade of the 70s was also on the heel of a major shift in the U.S. policing and imprisonment patterns. In the late 70s, early 80s, the criminal justice system began a distinctively new trend of locking more people up for longer periods of time. But who exactly did we begin locking up more and more for longer periods of their life? And where are we now, 40 years later? The vast majority of people who end up in our jails and prisons in the U.S. are living in poverty or near-poverty conditions before the moment of their arrest. For example... In 2014 dollars, one study by the Prison Policy Initiative showed people in prison, quote, had a median annual income of $19,185 prior to their incarceration, 41% less than what non-incarcerated people made of similar ages. And while 57% of non-incarcerated people made over 37500 a year, 57% of people behind bars made less than, you ready, 22500 prior to their incarceration. And if we can believe it or not, the poverty of people in jails is even worse than those in prison. Another report by the Prison Policy Initiative demonstrated that in 2015 dollars, people in jail had a median annual income of 15000 $109 prior to their incarceration. But in order for us to really get at wealth inequality in the U.S., we also have to talk about race and gender, because they are all interconnected and interdependent. And to start off, let's think about incarcerated people who are racialized as white, because most white people, one, don't think of themselves as racialized, and two, don't realize how many impoverished whites are being locked away. So, while there are some 800,000 whites currently behind bars, which is 300,000 more than the entire U.S. prison population only four decades ago, according to one report by Eli Day, <clears throat> quote, white males in the lowest income quintile have a more than 40% probability of being jailed at some point in their lives. That's two out of every five white males in the poorest fifth of our society will be spending time in jail at some point or another. Something impoverished white males might want to start considering. And while impoverished white people make up a significant portion of the U.S. prison population, people who are racialized as black or Hispanic are far more likely to spend time behind bars than their white counterparts. Today, according to a report by the Sentencing Project, comprising less than 40% of the national population, persons of color, as a lumped-together group of people, represent nearly 70% of the incarcerated population in state and federal prisons. African Americans, and Hispanics in particular, representing 12 and 13 percent of the adult population, collectively constitute 60 percent of the 2.3 million U.S. Americans in cages. Nationally, 
Despite being 12% of the population, African Americans, ready for this, make up 47% of people with life sentences. 77% of those serving life sentences for crimes they committed as youth. And 65% of those given life without parole for nonviolent crimes. But wait, there's more. While indigenous people make up a very small percent of the prison population, they are way more likely to be imprisoned than their white counterparts. As of 2015, in some states such as Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and the Dakotas, Native American youth <clears throat> excuse me, were four times more likely to be incarcerated than white youth. Imagine having a youth group with 50 kids racialized as white and 50 kids racialized as indigenous, sitting them down on two sides of an aisle, and then having four Native American youth stand up for every one white youth. The disparity would be glaring. For every one white woman born after 2001 who will be locked up, 2.5 Hispanic women and 6 black women can expect to join her. And while we could go all day with the statistics, I want to finish by acknowledging that 47% of all black transgender people in the U.S., that's nearly half, will be imprisoned, making black transgender people the most likely group to be incarcerated in the history of the United States. Now, most not all, but most of these people can expect to be released. But because formerly incarcerated persons are legally denied employment, food, housing, health care, education, and a political voice, they are incredibly desperate. And those that are able to find employment are forced into working the most life-sucking, low-wage work whenever employers want them, and are the first to be laid off when they don't. Once they're free from prison, they remain powerless and are subjected to the mercy of anyone willing to hire them, anyone willing to rent to them. And that's if they can somehow come up with the cash. But who is going to hire someone who is socially stigmatized as a dangerous person? Someone who many believe is naturally or essentially evil and criminal. What landlord or real estate agent who has to compete in the market would want their renters and buyers to know that they are living next to someone who society says should be avoided at all costs? I could keep going, but you get the picture. We really can't imagine a more hopeless situation of freedom to be released to. But the question I'd like us to ask is, how might this largely economically impoverished, disproportionately black and brown group of disposable people, this relatively new creation of a portion of the population who can be hired when cheap labor is needed and discarded when it's no longer profitable to pay them wages, be used to hold overworked low-wage workers hostage, who are then used to hold middle-wage workers hostage. 
How might the well-being of employed communities be entangled with the well-being of those swept under the tentacles of mass incarceration? If unemployment truly is a means of social control in capitalist societies used to dominate the masses of working-class peoples, no-wage, low-wage, and middle-wage communities who are subject to the power of a minority-ruling elite, then the compounding stress and suffering known even by communities who identify as middle-class cannot be separated from the struggle of criminalized persons, their families, and their friends. The disposability of criminalized peoples structurally serves to keep the working poor poor, who are then used to keep working middle-wage communities in their place. Why would working-class people of any income level ever expect their needs to be heard and their demands to be met when their employer can always replace them with someone more vulnerable, more desperate than they? Maybe, just maybe, those of us living on the outside, working our 40, 50, and 60-hour weeks, those of us who may never hear the slam of the prison door behind us, have more in common with the people being locked up than we've ever realized. So, how might one think theologically about capitalism's dependence on a group of disposable, unemployed people? How might our Christian faith lead us to respond? And what would our responses reveal about who we believe the God of Jesus to be? One way to think theologically about this would be to say that God doesn't really care about people like Tamar, the undesirables thrown away to places of exclusion and desperation. With this belief, we might explicitly defend the institutions and societies that impose such vulnerability on these people. We might rationalize why they deserve such an inferior position in our society. Or perhaps we'd simply stay quiet about it and not let their suffering worry us one bit. The God of Jesus, then, would likely see their suffering and exclusion as necessary and just. A second way we could think about this theologically would be to say that God is for the well-being of everyone and relates to every individual exactly the same, no matter how unequal the relations of the world are. This God doesn't choose sides in matters of inequality, no matter how unequally power is distributed or how much suffering results from it. Our response might be to support institutions that create inequality on the account that God refuses to take sides, even if one is exploited and oppressed by another. God just wants the same opportunities and the same grace offered to all individuals, no matter where you land in the world of inequality. The God of Jesus, then, might be a God of fairness, and wouldn't want us to focus too much on one group, even if they were forced to disproportionately carry the burdens of the world. Still, a third option might be to believe that God is solely and exclusively for the oppressed, God cares nothing for the well-being of individuals or groups in positions of power and privilege. With this belief, we might not only side with the oppressed, but perhaps we might even rationalize an end goal of completely annihilating those who are labeled the oppressors. 
The God of Jesus then would be quick to encourage the violent destruction of participants in systems of oppression. And finally, one might also imagine God to be for the well-being of both Tamar's and Judah's, to be for the well-being of the disposed of and the disposers, the disempowered and the powerful. But God seeks the well-being of the whole by becoming the God of the disposable people, by choosing sides. God prioritizes the restoration and liberation of those who are disproportionately exploited and oppressed so that the well-being of all can be realized. With this belief, our response might be to explicitly side with those who are made vulnerable and expendable, the violated and the discarded. But we would do so with the ultimate goal of realizing everyone's liberation. The God of Jesus, then, would be the God of the oppressed as a means of being the God of all creation. How do you believe God sees the suffering of disposable and disempowered people? What responses to the reality of disposability and inequality might your theology suggest we pursue? Who do you believe the God of Jesus is for people like Tamar? We talked about a lot in this two-part series. We raised the possibility that employed and unemployed communities have real common interests. We suggested that U.S. imprisonment and policing patterns function to continually create a group of disposable people to capitalism's delight. And we also added to our images of God, the God of the disposable people. Thank you for joining me on this journey as we continue to think theologically and ethically about the system and social relations of capitalism. We'll talk soon.